All right. Thank you for tuning back in to Being and Becoming podcast. I'm joined today by James Sedlasek. He received his PhD from University of Manchester, and he has just completed writing a very comprehensive and amazing book, from what I can gather, called The Perfect Aspect Integral to the Perfect and Pluperfect Tense Forms in the Pauline Corpus. Mr. Sudlasek, thank you for coming on our show and, and for talking with me today. Thank you as well. And if it's all right with you, I think we could just dive in. Um, for our listeners, I think a lot of us are curious in psychology, philosophy, religion. Um, I reached out to you because I saw that you had just written this book uh, on Facebook and I thought that the subject matter was very interesting along the lines of textual criticism and of original texts and scripts of the Bible. And I know that, um, you know, you had taught me in my class a little bit about, I think, some of this material uh, while I was in high school and, and you were my t a teacher of mine. But um, obviously, you've gone on and continued your studies and so if you just want to um, maybe talk through the program that you're in or that you've just completed and and the the reason for the book, kind of some of the maybe the motivation and background. Sure, I can do that. Um, well, I was in a New Testament program at the University of Manchester, but my field was Greek linguistics. So I was interested in what do the things in our Greek New Testaments actually mean? Uh, that, that kind of question is the forefront of Greek linguistics. Um, my, my book here uh, that Logan's mentioned is um, that recently got published uh, a couple of weeks back. Um, that is the culmination of the work that I did in my PhD program, uh, now published as a formal book. Uh, but that was a project that actually began uh, in its... Uh, its beginnings uh, while I was teaching at uh, Cincinnati Christian Schools, I was reading the primary literature that I would later have to argue against. So uh, maybe I should mention the three cardinal works. In, in, the, um, in uh, the realm of uh, Greek linguistics, one of the components that is uh, often explained and sometimes debated is a concept called verbal aspect. And Basically, what that means is that when you use a particular verb to describe a situation, it always shows what your perspective is on that situation. So take, for example, in the past tense, I can say, I was walking, or I can say, I walked. Those two verbs, although they are both the same tense, they both explain the, the past, uh, they have two completely different perspectives on the walking action. One of them is incomplete, I was walking, and it usually anticipates some other kind of activity that's going to interrupt the walking. I was walking when Sally tripped me, okay? But if I say I walked, the event is viewed in its entirety, and it's meant in its entirety in the context, and things that modify the verb will modify the entirety of the event. And so this difference, the incompleteness or the entirety, uh, of the of the action is called verbal aspect. The uh, incompleteness is called imperfective aspect, 
So all of the is walking, was walking types of constructions in English are imperfective, while he walked is perfective. It shows the full action. Well, in Greek, this, this same thing happens. In the Greek, there's more than one type of tense. Um, and so in verbal aspect, um, a number of scholars have outlined what the verbal aspect must be for each of the Greek tenses. And to a large extent, I agree with most of what they say when it pertains to the present tense, the aorist tense, the imperfect tense, very prominent tenses in Greek uh, for, for present or past. Most of the things they have to say are, are spot on. However, Greek has a tricky tense and it's called the perfect tense. And it's not quite clear what aspect is being used. In fact, sometimes a perfect tense seems to be focused on an action and other times on a state. And when it's focusing on an action, it seems to behave like one way, while when it's focused on a state, it, be, it behaves totally different and almost opposite to how it behaves when focusing on an action. This has confused linguists as they try to analyze the, the Greek perfect tense. So prior to my work, uh, Stanley Porter has argued that the Greek perfect tense is primarily stative. And there's three categories of verbal aspect. Perfective, imperfective, and stative, where the stative provides a third op option. Uh, most of the other proponents of verbal aspect do not argue for three aspects, they argue for two. And so Buist Fanning, who published his first work almost the same time as, as Stanley Porter, he argued that the Greek perfect is perfective, just like the aorist tense, but it has a something else added to it that can give us those states sometimes. Constantine Campbell comes along uh, more than a decade later, and he argues that the Greek perfect tense is imperfective, kind of like the imperfect tense, uh, less like the aorist tense, the, the, the other past tense that's complete. But uh, he argues that somehow it, it isn't focused on the event, it's focused on the state, but uh, imperfective. A complex uh, array of events is somehow looked at in a stative way, but it's imperfective in his view. And so he argues for imperfective, but what seems to be unclear is that sometimes his explanations seem to look more like imperfective actions rather than states. Uh, and it seems as though he slipped in his categories just a bit. Uh, and so when we, when we read the three cardinal works put out by uh, Porter, Fanning, and Campbell, two of which are published in the same series that I, my book is in, one of which is published in Oxford Theological Monograph series. Uh, we see three different views for the Greek perfect tense, and when dealing with verbal aspect, they seem to land on very opposite things to, to uh, explain the perfect tense. Some of their explanations of how a perfect tense works in a particular verse in the New Testament is the same, though. So the to some extent, these three views, although opposite sounding, can be bent or they're a little bit flexible here and there, and they can still arrive sometimes at the same uh, interpretation. However, that's not true everywhere. They don't always arrive at the same interpretation because their, their view on what is important for verbal aspect is just different. So I began my research realizing that when the perfect tense was described and defined, it was done so from three different perspectives leading to three different results. And as they are each argue their cases, it's, it became clear to me that it, it couldn't be all three. 
uh, they couldn't all three be right. Uh, in other words, somebody ne we needed a test somewhere that would uh, show that one of the views was superior to the others, or one of the views was uh, easy to rule out. And so as I got into reading the literature, I did this most of uh, 2011, 2012, while I was uh, teaching at Cincinnati Christian. I read their three cardinal works. I made lots and lots of notes. Uh, and I realized that some of the details in each of them were spot on, but if they had been com uh, compiled a different way, a, a completely different result would emerge than what any of the three had argued, and it actually explained the perfect tense better. So what my view did, my book argues that the, the verbal aspect contained within the Greek perfect tense is comprised not of one aspect, but two. The verb form itself has two major components. It has a component that focuses on the, the uh, action and another component that's in front of it called the reduplicant. And, and many grammars don't state in them what the meaning is for the reduplicant. But when you research reduplication studies in general, you find out that one of the prominent meanings for a reduplicant is a state. Do so, reduplicants happen in English as well, or is that specific to Greek, Greek languages? It happens very rarely in English. We sometimes have what we call whole word reduplication, like uh, run to the store, chop, chop, and we say chop twice. Oh, okay. That, that would be an example of reduplication in English, but it, it's different from what we see on the Greek perfect tenses. For example, if you if you said poiel, uh, um, which is um, I do or I make, and then in, in the perfect tense would be pe poiel. You would have an extra pe on the front of it, that verb. Um, if you if you were trying to say um, um, phileo, I love, uh, you would have pe phileo, an extra pe on the front of phileo, and that that is the reduplicant. That's the the extra syllable as as it were on on the front of the perfect tense, and and those things tend to be. Uh, in many languages that use them like that, they tend to indicate a state. While the core, the core verb, indicates the action that's that you look up in the dictionary. Um, and when you're talking about state, is that state of being? Yes. Or okay, some sort of state of being. And so most of the most of those who argue for stative readings of the perfect tense in Greek, they they refer to a state that belongs to the subject of the sentence. So if you say uh, God has loved the world and you use a perfect tense, then it's God's state that's being referred to there. Uh, what kind of state is God in now that he has done that? And an example is if you had a crowd of people and you were about to go somewhere new and you said, who's been there before? And somebody says, I have done that. They used a perfect tense to indicate they are having a status of being one who can get you there. They did it before. That's the kind of state that often emerges for the state of the subject. It's not the only type, but that's an easy example of, of the kind of state that might emerge by using a perfect tense for a subject. And, um, and is there, you were, I think you're alluding to this earlier, and this might have even been before we started recording on the call, but there is maybe some disagreement with the state of versus one of the other three types and is that is that in specific sections within like the text of the bible or is 
Um, where do the, maybe where do those disagreements originate? Those agreements, uh, those disagreements originate from how to apply linguistics to our Greek grammars. That that's the interface that where these disagreements come into place. Uh, these scholars are aware of linguistic argumentation. They're aware of what's in the Greek grammar. How do we merge the two? And mm. so this concept of verbal aspect uh, has been an ongoing thing and an ongoing debate in all languages um, for a long time, um, at, at least uh, to the 1920s or 30s uh, when it began. Uh, the Prague School of Linguistics in what is now the Czech Republic uh, kind of began some of these investigations. And then when the uh, when Czechoslovakia was given over to the Germans prior to World War II, they had to flee. Many of them fled to England or the United States. Some of them did not uh, successfully escape, but uh, some of their work was kind of shut down. Uh, but uh, Roman Jacobson, who made it to the United States, uh, he did publish a lot of his works in English as well as the uh, original language that they had been in uh, over in the Czech Republic. And I think some of them were in German, some of them were in Russian, but uh, it, it was through the Prague School of Linguistics. That's There's really a... incredible to me that it can be in so many different languages and you have maybe a handful of people that are really diligent and knowing all these languages and, and um, being able to translate passages between them. And for example, verbal aspect in English was was at, by many considered as not possible to decide how it fits English as a language because English does a couple of weird things that other languages don't seem to do. However, there is a scholar with, by the last name Binnick who teaches in Toronto who has his own website of English linguistics, and he has shown successfully that English does use this category of linguistics throughout its verb system just as thoroughly as other languages do. Wow. And uh, he's he's a a really good uh, source if you want to trace what verbal aspect is in English language. Um, he, his website has oh, many thousands of articles or books that he has collected in bibliography uh, over the years. He's got a bibliography for linguistics uh, broken down by language, broken down by um, other categories as well. It's quite vast. Um, I think the the first uh, go on his bibliography, if you tr if you try to print it off, it will fill a three-ring binder of the thickest dimensions you could buy. Wow. It's a massive bibliography. And that's just bibliography. That's not text or something to compare. And it's quite thorough. Um, but he's quite the scholar on how these linguistic categories match up in the English language. I think that's a helpful place for anyone wanting to see what do these linguistic ideas, uh, how do they relate to English? That would be a great place to look. How they relate to other languages, there's different schools that have prominently tried to do some things like that. And I think for Greek, uh, it's various. Different universities, different uh, professors have, have made some contributions along the way, uh, rather than it being neatly found at one location. I th I think that's uh, interesting as well because there there are a lot of different maybe schools of thought interpretation, um, it with these texts and I I even recall you mentioning at I think yeah this was before we were recording on the call, um you were discussing in 2013 
there was um I, I can't recall the meeting, but maybe there were two different schools of thought and they were they were having a debate and maybe do you mind um touching yeah. that on that again? Because I think that really that formed the inspiration for the book that you've just completed, if I recall correctly. Yes. Well, reading those three cardinal works, which were published uh, earlier than the 2013 debate, was the thing that motivated me to find out. So if these three disagree so greatly on the perfect tense, where can I look? What evidence can I look at that will help steer me to one of the three or somewhere new? And that began my search. I didn't know about the 2013 debate until it took place and people were blogging about the the spillover from from that debate but in 2013 at SBL uh papers were presented uh for the uh the perfect uh tense debate i think the one of the sessions was nicknamed or maybe called the perfect storm and uh it was quite hot in the debate and i think these rooms typically hold comfortably 30 to 50 people in in the uh in the conference rooms and if they if they want a really big room they've got to reserve one of the bigger ones well well when the planning of the conference this uh this was in one of the 30 to 50 person rooms and i think 300 people tried to attend wow so they were very crowded and very stuffed in there and there were people trying to lean in and poke their heads in through gaps in elbows and things like that it was quite a a thing from what i've heard i was not physically there during that one i would have loved to have been there uh, even though it was probably cramped <laughs> but yeah <laughs> the the debate was so hot so heated that it it uh generated after it a number of other conferences so uh in 2016 there was a conference in uh tyndale house just on the greek verb nothing else uh and particularly i think maybe a third maybe a half of the papers were about perfect tenses because the debate had generated that much uh, energy from the SBL meeting uh, in 2013. And it would be a small parallel paper presented at a large conference where hundreds of papers are in different rooms all at the same time. They just happened to be in a, wrong, in a small room, which was wrong size for that paper, apparently, for those papers that day. And it, they would have done better in a bigger room. But uh, I've been to some of the sessions since then and i've not seen that big of a crowd uh at some of the the other papers but it wasn't the papers a lot of the ones since then were not the, those three individuals debating each other um, did you so, foresee there being such an anticipation for a meeting like that as you were mentioning before it didn't it didn't seem expected they didn't have the right size room it, what in your estimation intrigued such an interest from either the public or just from other intellectuals studying this field? The size of the room is almost pre-disposed uh, by the conference because all papers get submitted into sections and certain sections just typically have certain room sizes. Um, so if you go to the textual criticism seminar, they're going to have a certain room size every year. If you go to the Enix seminar, it's going to have a room a certain size every year. If you go to the Greek linguistics room, you're going to have a certain size of room every year. Your big rooms are usually your keynote speakers or topics that they know are generating a lot of attention that year. And this just happened to be the uh, perfect storm. This It happened to be the room where they all three were there and they were interviewed uh, and provided papers and were uh, providing rebuttals to papers and debating each other. There was no way that that 
one session was sufficient for, for what in, ensued. And so they agreed to close it down. They were well over time, close it down. And instead of resuming this as a session at the conference, they needed to trade papers with each other and write rebuttals to each other. And then the moderator collected all of these and put them in a volume. And that was volume 21, which was just ahead of my own volume 22 in the series. It took nine years to get that debate and all of the rebuttals and counter rebuttals together and published as a volume. I knew that this was an issue when I started reading the primary literature. When I started my PhD program, the number of articles and books on Greek perfect tenses doubled in one year. This was this kind of gives the scale for how much interest this subject was generating in the scholarly world. That that one perfect storm um, session was generating a lot of things. And then by 2016, there were two other conferences. A third one was held in one of the Carolinas. I don't remember which Carolina it was. I think it was actually held at a church, but they invited the same uh, two or, th or maybe all three of the same debaters to be at their conference. A number of other individuals were involved in debating certain elements, not necessarily the meaning of a perfect tense, but certain elements that emerged in their debate. Um, so for example, how is a perfect tense used in a supplementary clause, a supplemental clause? That was another debating point. The other one is, do the verbs have tense or not? Do they definitely have a past tense, a present tense or not? That was a debatable point that, that emerged in, in uh, in follow-on conferences. And so the Greek verb conference in Tyndale House um, uh, over in England, that one was a, a follow-on conference based on the perfect storm. None of the papers presented there, well, take it back, maybe one paper presented there was from the three cardinal debaters. Uh, but most of the papers were not about that perfect storm debate. I would say probably five papers out of the whole conference were definitely related to the perfect storm debate, but the, the venue of the conference was some of the um, excitement that was generated by that debate in 2013. The, the, the purpose of the conference was definitely a reaction to that debate, and most of the papers there had something to do with issues that were raised in that debate, but only maybe five of them directly dealt with perfect tenses. And I, I mentioned maybe four or five of those papers in my book. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned all five. Some of them had some points I had to counter. Some of them had some points I agreed with, or uh, I had some suggestions for. And so those were included in, in, in the book. But what does a perfect tense mean? Has to do with how do we marry linguistics with Greek grammars? That's, that's the issue. That's what you're trying to do with, with this kind of thing. And when you read through the Greek grammars, they all tell you what a perfect tense does. They don't tell you what it is. So is that maybe what your book is looking to investigate is, okay. Yeah, my book describes the perfect tense as a sandwich using those two pieces we talked about before, the verb, the core verb and the reduplicant. The core verb points to an event. That reduplicant on the front points to a state. The core verb is spelled inside very much like an aorist tense. Part of my book explores the that particular thing where over several different verbs that the perfect tense core is still spelled the same way as aorist verbs are. 
So it is a perfective. It focuses on the event in a complete view, a whole view on the event, just like he walked. When we say he walked, he, he walked, and we want to throw that in the English perfect, we say he has walked. We still use a walked form. We don't say mm -hmm. he has walking. Doesn't exist, right? It's not in part of the English language. He has walking, but he has walked. We use a walked form. So it's the same in Greek. That core is shaped like the simple past, the perfective, but the reduplicate on the front points to the state. And a number of different states can emerge because of the perfect. This person could be in some special status because they walked there before or because they generally have walked. I mean, a doctor looking at two patients, one who has not walked and one who has walked, is, there's going to be different medical benefits for the one who has walked. So there's there's a state that's there, whether it's ever stated or um, emphasized in the context or not. There's always some kind of state because the person has done that action. They're in a state. And I think regarding the the tenses and the state and the examples that you're just giving, is there something that comes to mind where in the Greek maybe it's a passage in the New Testament or something where sure. there is either different interpretation or di differences even in um, different manuscripts that we have? Anything of that nature come to mind? Yes, and, and not so much different manuscripts, but certainly different interpretations. And one of the things I've tried to keep my eye open to is if the manuscripts themselves have different tense forms because of some of these issues related to verbal aspect. Um, but that I haven't done as thoroughly um, looking at the manuscript differences. But as far as interpretation goes, 1 Corinthians 15 stands out to me as an example text of why both are there. Both the state can be there and the action can be there. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, we have the verb gegreptai. So it's graptai with ge on the front. It's, it's the combined thing. You've got the, the written uh, verb, but you've got the get in front, which means it has been written. It's a passive um, form of the perfect. It has been written. Actually, I want to uh, take a step back. It's I'm thinking of gegreptai, but um, egergetai is the verb that's in 1 Corinthians 15.4, and that's he has been raised. So he has been raised from the dead. That's the 1 Corinthians 15.4. In that verse, verse 4, uh, Paul has just iterated a number of historical truths about Christ, and he specifies he has been risen from the dead on the third day. That's a temporal modifier, and that type of modifier in Greek usually modifies a point in time, not a duration of time. It modifies a point. And that kind of adverb, when we start looking at things that are actions and states, usually do not modify states. They modify actions. The action took place on that day. And so because he modifies it with on that day, we know that at least there, the verb egergetai focuses on the event of being raised from the dead on the third day. All of the other verbs around it are aorist passives. So it's a string of aorist passives with one perfect passive tucked into the string. And it's clear in that verse that he's summarizing a bunch of key theological points about Christ's previous actions, such as he was born. Um, he was uh, he was uh, crucified. He was 
buried, and then he was raised on the third day. He goes through the list of things that are true for theology about Christ. There, the verb is clearly eventive. And it's emphasizing the lexical core of the verb, just like those aorist verbs on either side of it. In verse 12, and perhaps verse 22, just a little further down, the same verb, not spelled any differently. This is what's key. It's the same lexeme. It's the same verb talking about Christ's risenness. His state of being risen now matters to why the Christians have certain benefits now. And it's that theological thing that in, in, in the development, why Christians do this, why Christians are like this, because Jesus is now risen. But he uses a perfect tense. He has been risen. Because he has been risen, we now are, we now are, we now do, and, and that kind of argumentation. It's not about the event. It's about his status. And this one, this passage in particular has confused the linguists that have argued on the meaning of perfect tenses. And, and their views, the three collectively that I, I counter in my, in my book, um, they have one single aspect for the perfect that must be true on every perfect. They're going to have trouble with perfect tenses that get used in different ways, very drastically different ways, like this same chapter does with the same verse, only a few, few verses later. Um, so, for example, there have been scholars that have said, oh, uh, Paul meant to use an aorist in verse 4. Well, this one comes back to the question you asked me about manuscripts. I actually looked at the manuscripts on that one because if there was a manuscript they used an aorist, that, that scholar has a point. None of them do. Every one of them, it's a perfect passive. Uh, I, I found that to be interesting. Uh, the, the other thing, because if you ever get into a linguistic debate, one of the first things you want to see is, are the manuscripts different? Is it possible that the author could have wrote it one way or the other? And uh, here, in that case, not possible. Uh, there's no manuscript at all with a perfect passive. I mean, a heiress passive for he, he was raised. No, it's he has been raised on the third day, definitely modifying a perfect tense with a time of lo location point in time type of adverbial phrase. Uh, I needed one like that to prove my thesis because one of the arguments has been, oh, certain verbs are always stative and certain verbs are always eventive. That also is not true. They can be either one if they're in the perfect tense. Um, uh, I ran into some arguments around oida, which is the verb I know, I have perceived. It's a perfect tense, but it's used like a present state all the time. Well, it can be because the perfect can do both because it has both of the morphemes inside the word. Uh, but it doesn't mean that certain verbs are always stative. It's only stative because of the way we translate it. If we look at the aorists of that verb, they're never stative. They're always eventive or actional. Um, Adon, when he saw. And it's interesting because in my book, I show in that chapter section, uh, it says, when Jesus saw what they were about to do, has he seen something yet? Did something actually appear in front of his eyes if they were still about to do it? No. Somewhere in his cognitive perception ability, he realized what they were about to do. And that verb there is translated saw, which is an action. 
but later in the perfect, that same verb always means I know. Well, what's, how are those two related? They're related because they, they have to do with cognitive perception. And we're just translating them see and know because that's the easiest way to translate them in English. But the verb root itself, it makes sense that it, it would be stative in many of its perfect tense situations and actional or eventive in its aorist tense situations. So in that situation with the Jesus realizing there there's a plot conspiring against him, instead of saying he saw, would it would something more appropriate be Jesus has perceived or Jesus perceived that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I offer the alternative translation. When Jesus perceived what they were about to do to translate the aorist, and then for the perfect, when uh, instead of saying, I know, I have perceived. Because we have to perceive before we know. And then that helps show the fact that the perfect tense really, even in those questionable cases, still really have both. They have the the action connected to to that state doesn't mean every instance you need to go find an action and a state uh, but the point that it can do both and flexibly do both was one of the points of my thesis another point in my thesis is you can decide that it's one or the other many times by the adverbs i don't think any of the other scholars focused on adverbs to the verbs and how the adverbs tell us something about what the verb is like um, mm -hmm. so that was one of the unique contributions of my uh, of my book, uh, but the the main argument of my books, the perfect tense has two verbal aspects on the form. The author can use it either way they want to. They have the choice to focus on the event or the state, and sometimes both. And uh, like for example, Paul uses agergatai, First Corinthians fifteen, first time to focus on the event, a few verses later to focus on a state. There's the state, there's the event, or you can focus on both. Is there a prescription for how the writers of the New Testament, maybe more specifically since that's written in Greek, was there, did they fluctuate between, between the three of those? Like sometimes they were, okay, so, um, so then is there a certain way that maybe, let's say 20 years ago, people were reading those texts and were they focusing on just one of those three like just the event or just the state the status like the state of being and the, so you're you're arguing maybe we should be looking at all three of these in in the context that they're being used that's right the the three uh uh cardinal works that i argue uh against a bit on the perfect tense not so much the other tenses but the uh on the perfect tense is that uh, they need to leave open all three options to the reader, to the interpreter, because they were open to the author. The author was not restricted from using it uh, for, to refer to an event or to refer to a state or to refer to both. It's more rare that it refers to both, but it can. They tend to use them either way. You go earlier in Greek, they tend to be used for states mostly. You go back to Homer, Aristotle, uh, Homer especially, a lot of states. When you get to Aristotle, though, in Plato, you start seeing some eventive uses as well as stative uses. New Testament, you see a lot of them back and forth. You go out to the church fathers, Basil of Caesarea and such, they're mostly using them as events, not states. 
And this is one of the contributions of my, my uh, book is that it explains why the perfect tense can do both so extremely differently from one end of the time spectrum to the other, where none of the other three can explain that change. Because if it's truly only one, they can only explain early Greek usage or late Greek usage, not both. That's very interesting. That's quite a development within the field, I would imagine. Yes. Um, it's the only study that argues for both aspects on the perfect. So that makes it unique uh, compared to other argumentation about the perfect. Um, one of the things I consistently do, and I think I do it better than uh, the three cardinal works that I mentioned, uh, is that I maintain distinctions uh, very rigidly between uh, what is uh, grammar and what is uh, lexical semantics. So uh, grammar semantics or grammatical semantics has to do with what does a verb mean because it's a verb, not what does it mean because it's this verb. Lexical semantics has to do with what does it mean because it's this verb out of the dictionary. And so when we deal with what is a verb, what are verbal endings, what are verbal tenses, you're dealing with one component. And on the other hand, you're dealing with what does word what does a word mean? Um, and so those two things have to be separate. A lot of the studies that I read uh, got into what I'd call logical trouble because they had these two mixed together and not clearly distinguishing what, what was truly the meaning of the verb and what was its meaning because it was in this tense form or that tense form. And do you think, does that have to do with interpretation of the way a text is being read or is that something you should just keep in mind as it's general some, general knowledge? You should keep it in mind in general, um, although I do think uh, sometimes uh, a scholar's maybe uh, predisposition to interpret a text a certain way has led to some of the linguistic views that they hold. That's possible. I don't know of any particular case that I can point to and say that's definitely happened here or there, uh, but it's something uh, that can happen. It can happen when we're used to reading text a certain way. And so that can happen. But uh, I would say it's, it's a thing to keep in mind. The perfect tense is more flexible than what any of the three um, proponents that I argue against have, have claimed. It's more flexible than that because it's designed from material that's generally more flexible than that. I think you're, you're also mentioning this, does this transfer over to English as well? And it, it, or is it, okay, not just specific to Greek? Yeah, if we think about how languages generally make perfect tenses, think about how English puts have in front of the ED verb. I have walked, I have talked, I have said. We do it by combining a present tense stative verb on the front, followed by a past tense lexical class verb that's usually a verb of action. I see. And that present tense that's stative is also an imperfective. If we study the, the categories of English carefully, it's not a perfective verb, but the, the action verb is always perfective. So we've created a perfect tense in English and in many worldwide languages using a present focused stative verb that's imperfective sandwiched onto the front of a past tense verb that is perfective in its nature, but it is the lexical verb that you look up in the dictionary. It's the one that provides the information for the event. And that sandwich is what produces a perfect tense. 
it's identical to what's happened in the Greek perfect tense. It's just comprised differently. The reduplicant is not the same thing as a uh, auxiliary verb, like we like to call them in English. Auxiliary verbs are helping verbs or modal verbs. Well, the reduplicant on the Greek perfect tense is very similar to that and actually develops over time through a similar process. Can I ask what got you interested in all of the linguistics and, and Greek and everything? I'm curious to hear maybe what was your origin story as far as starting to get interested in this in this area, subject matter. It goes back to when I was in my master's degree. In my master's degree, I was taking a lot of Greek exegesis courses where we, we literally went through every part of speech in a single book of the New Testament every single word, every single grammatical component, and we, we went through it, analyzed all the ranges of meanings these things had, what did the scholars say behind this or that, and I found that linguistics was often at the background of many of the debates, but it was scarcely brought over, if you will, into biblical studies in a helpful way to the students who would be taking biblical studies programs at the master's degree level. Um, a few grammars try to do that here and there, but they're often very selective in what they bring over. Um, but for the most part, the grammars have not tried to, to uh, incorporate a linguistic approach. Uh, but these linguistic ideas are there, and often you'll read a scholar say, well, these three other scholars can't be right because their linguistics does not found their, uh, provide a foundation for their understanding of Greek grammar. And it's like, well, is that a baseless accusation or is this something? The only way to know is to dig into linguistics a bit and find out if there's substantial benefit to that approach versus uh, not doing it. And I found that linguistics can be very valuable. But in one of those classes, what my prime professor said to me that one of the newest things that's going to be one of the bigger things of tomorrow is verbal aspect. It's It's not something we teach a course on, but it's what what is the backbone of what these three scholars are saying? He says, if you progress further, you're going to have to deal with verbal aspect. If you're going to write biblical commentaries, you're going to need to deal with verbal aspect at some level. So you need to get a grasp on it. So I knew that in the back of my mind. I took an adjunct job teaching the year before I taught at CCS, teaching Greek uh, at God's Bible School and College located in uh, Cincinnati as well. My boss at uh, CCU, where I was doing my master's, said uh, he had run into uh, the Greek professor there and he needed some help. And I said, well, I'll be happy to help. And one of our meetings in his office, he pulls the same three books off his shelf that we were introduced to in seminary. He said, these three individuals have a lot to say about perfect tense or about verb tenses and their meanings. He said, however, when they come to the perfect, they're in stark disagreement. And I can't imagine how all three of them can be right, but I can't see how to go forward and see which one of them is right. That's when I took it to heart that I needed to really process those works. And as I stated earlier, probably in my second and third year of teaching at CCS is when I processed the material of those three books in their entirety and made thorough notes. I, I located something where I thought I could compile the pieces differently than the three scholars had done and arrive at a different conclusion that was more helpful to the overall understanding of what a perfect tense generally is for languages. And then um, it was probably 
Then I had to, of course, read their, their footnoted information, their sources on linguistics to get a grapple on whether they're handling the linguistic material fairly or not. That took a lot of reading. Um, I didn't start that reading until I started my PhD process after I uh, finished uh, teaching there at CCS. Uh, but then when I got a, a grasp on it, it dawned on me. I was actually at a conference in, I think it was Atlanta at an SBL, another SBL session. I think it was Atlanta. Maybe it was San Antonio. It was one of those two places because it happened right around 2015, right around that time. I can't remember what year the conference where which location it was at but 2015 i was sitting uh kind of sort of pacing back and forth getting ready for a, a session that was going to happen in a couple hours and i was just trying to do a little more work on my on my uh center piece in my in my uh thesis that i was writing for my phd it dawned on me this analogy between modern perfect tenses and how they're constructed and how that is directly parallel to what what I believe to be true in the Greek perfect. Once I realized that they were in parallel, if we can do this by sandwiching two verbal aspects onto each other with two different verb forms, why can't we do it with a Greek core verb and a reduplicate? That's when I began to chase down reduplication studies to see if that could support that claim. It does actually quite nicely. Uh, those are formed almost by the same forces of language change that form auxiliary verbs. So th they have a similar process and have a similar purpose. Um, the other thing that was helpful to me was thinking about the, the scientific fields that deal with how language changes over time. Grammaticalization was the centerfold for me. That was the, that was the main linguistic tool to use. Grammaticalization is the science that studies how language changes over time. And a case in point would be how to take a, a particle that's a noun. It belongs to some category of speech and start using it in new ways. And eventually it develops grammatical properties. And then later it might become a prefix or a suffix for a verb as it changes over time and it gets used in different ways. And these kind of changes over time are, are chartable. You can chart the path that they go through to get from this point to that point over this many centuries or millennia. That's and, fascinating. Yeah, and that was the school of linguistics that none of my, uh, uh, those three authors, none of them used any type of linguistics that was diachronic, that was examining language over the long haul to see how it changes over time. They were using only synchronic type uh, studies that study what it's like in this century. And because they're using those models, they cannot estimate that thing that's changing. And the perfect tense is the one that does change so much in Greek literature, from the early literature to the late literature. It changes so dramatically, you've got to have a, 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 an understanding of something that, that would explain that change. My model for the perfect explains that change nicely. Is that... Sorry, I, I want to kind of touch on two yeah, yeah. things. Is sure. the the... I think you said the name was diachronic, right? Yeah. Diachronic. So that's the method you're interested in as far as the grammatization. Is that correct? The... 
Grammaticalization. Okay. Yeah. Grammaticalization. Ah, I knew I was slightly off. I couldn't figure out what. Okay. No worries. And um, and so is this. This is in reference to the Greek, but I'm assuming it also pertains to English as well. And for either reading the the Bible or the, I guess it wouldn't be early manuscripts, but are, are there ways that language or words change over time to where you, where translations would need to be altered or maybe our understanding of what it originally meant has changed? Yes. Um, so, for example, if you read the old King James, the original King James, you read some expressions in there that don't make any sense today uh, because we don't understand how that verb is being used, what it refers to. Um, and, and it's because uh, in, in our modern English, we don't use that verb that way anymore. And so a translation making a fresh translation from the Greek text isn't going to use that verb. They're going to use something that we use currently to translate that Greek verb. And so then we get a fresh translation, which reads differently than the older translation, but it actually makes sense better today than the reading an ancient translation would. Um, so, I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of a verse in that the way the King James words it is, to him that letteth, he letteth. And it's like, well, what does letteth mean? We don't even use the ending eth anymore, plus uh, let. Let isn't used as a action verb. We only use it as a modal verb. And so that is a, that's an example of a verb that's gone through grammaticalization from King James English to now. And we have to understand what the original active verb meant and translate with a different verb today. Um, and, and not use that one because we would use let on let me do, let me make, let me talk. And it becomes a modal verb for a different action instead of being an action verb by itself. Let me see if I'm understanding this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Exactly. Um, and then so that's that makes sense. That's really helpful for you to break down in the English because the King James is is very antiquated, I guess you could say. But. Even fast tracks of it as you can understand with modern English perfectly fine. But then when you find right. that those one passage here or there, you go, what? What in the world is this? Yeah. And I'm wondering, too, on the so with the Greek writings, maybe the early copies of copies that we have of manuscripts, would would those have changed as well? Was there enough time whenever, you know, those say like Pauline letters or, you know, those kind of writings, whenever they're first written down to whenever we have the last copy of a Greek text, do you see the same kind of transformation with really? Okay. Yes. Uh, in fact, some places, because the perfect tense starts off as being mostly about states and ends up in the period of the late church fathers as being mostly about an event, a lot more verbs would have been aorist in the older period. They're now being used, perfect tenses are being used in the current, in the later stages. So there are places in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament where older manuscripts will have an aorist and the later manuscripts will have a perfect in the same spot because that was wow. how they were doing things at that time. So it's not really a, a scribal mistake. It's the scribe realizes, oh, that isn't how we use that verb anymore. 
and and is that over a period of hundreds of years or even That's just right okay yeah. hundreds yeah, of years wow. yeah i guess i guess i also don't realize how long greek writing would or greek language would have lasted you know with with the bible and because eventually it goes to latin i guess and is that maybe in the around well, the early hundreds ad or the late 300s right around there right okay because once Constantine becomes the first Christian emperor, one of his one of his purposes is to make sure that all the churches have quality, full Bibles from Old Testament to New Testament. And so this begins a a manuscript haunting uh, collation period and trying to get the best manuscripts, trying to get the best Bibles. And we think maybe vaticanus and sinaiticus maybe even alexandrinus those three old manuscripts might be three of constantine's church bibles we don't know that for sure but they certainly are like them and they, and they either are a copy of them or they're uh, a, um, one of them so that's he high, had yeah that's highly interesting that they're still uh relatively in good condition too or this is just parts of the they're very good condition. Um, I think Sinaiticus is missing a few pages from the beginning of Genesis and a few pages from the back of Revelation, but otherwise it's fairly complete. And Vaticanus is pretty near complete, and I believe Alexandrinus is pretty complete. And these were Bibles that were made. Uh, I would just a rough date, three fifties on the two, and then maybe four ten, four twenty on the next one. Those are reasonably safe guesses on, on the date of those three. But the Vulgate, as you mentioned, translation into Latin also takes place around the same time because Jerome is the one who did that. And he was basing his Vulgate off of what we think was the Vaticanus Greek text. So when he, when he has that whole Bible in front of him, he's turning that into Latin and makes the Vulgate. I uh I was I was talking with you earlier about reading Dr. Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, and uh, he talks about that as well. As far as Constantine ordering the church leaders to have you know written uh, copies of of the works of the early church letters and things of that nature, I'm wondering too. So, I uh, in your opinion, had he not ordained that role or maybe he doesn't even come to power or something how significant of effect do you think that would have on history or, or as far as do you think there could have been some manuscripts that would have been lost to time or lost to history or some works that weren't even completed because of him issuing an order like that so there's pros and cons both ways when we try to analyze Constantine, because we don't know exactly everything that took place under this edict. Uh, what happened to the manuscripts? We don't get the full picture. Um, it's possible that when they decided that these were the best texts, they may have destroyed the ones that they did not think were the best texts and therefore created a problem for textual critics today to be able to solve the mystery on exactly how do you go from this text to that text to that one in other words determining the exact genealogy of which scribe copied from which document is much harder if if any of them got destroyed well the other thing is is if he, the other thing that he positively does is when those 50 bibles are made they're not made on papyri they're made on parchment 
the most expensive materials for producing a book. And they are produced in book form, not scroll form. And that those two things together allowed them to, to stand the test of time and still be available for us to see in museums today. That's very interesting. Because yeah. manuscripts corrupt. They do destroy. People handle them, move them from one location to another. They get wet. They get finger oils. The average lifespan of a papyri document is 20 years. And if you oh, don't wow. do something, it's not going to preserve. So the ones buried in jars in the desert, those preserved. Those buried Dead in, Sea uh, Scrolls, right? That would have yeah. been, okay. And we took the classes that we had at the time to the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit. Um, I remember going there multiple times. Yeah, that was very impressive. That was definitely a trip that stood out to me from high school as well. And the significance of those findings. Regard, I remember specifically regarding the Book of Isaiah. There were a lot of, or no, I wouldn't say a lot, but there were some critics that thought Isaiah could have been written after the New Testament because there's so much prophecy being fulfilled regarding Jesus as the Messiah. But that I that's one of the things I do remember from the Dead Sea Scrolls was that it, in fact, did date Isaiah to be written well before our earliest copies of the New Testament. Yes, and the text that we have in the Hebrew Masoretic uh, Bible is nearly identical with one of the scrolls uh, in, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's very impressive as well. Considering yeah. all the all the time, like what would what would be the the year that that was dated? The Dead Sea Scrolls did they have a the main scroll of Isaiah? I don't remember its date, but it's it's available on the web. You can look at it, and I'm sure they provide a date there. But it's it's definitely near or before the time of the uh, the translation to the Septuagint Greek Bible, and and so it would have been around that time, roughly. It just to ballpark it, and uh, that predates the New Testament by at least 250 years, maybe 300. It could even be more. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked at the, the website recently, to, and I don't remember the date. But the Hebrew Masoretic text that we have that synagogues use today, uh, the oldest manuscripts for it date back to 900 AD. Uh, Codex Leningradus, uh, found in Leningrad, and, uh, which is now uh, St. Petersburg, uh, but uh, and then one found in Aleppo, Syria, uh, the Aleppo Codex. Uh, codex is a word for book form. Um, it's it's a type of book form, uh, not a scroll. Uh, and so uh, those two coming from around 900 ish A.D., uh, maybe maybe a thousand A.D. We're dealing with the time of uh, early medieval Europe. That's what we're dealing with. Those are the oldest two manuscripts for what we know is the Masoretic text tradition. Uh, those aren't very old when we think about New Testament documents being much older than that. So it's nice when we find the Dead Sea Scrolls and we can find Isaiah predating all of that, identical to what we see in the Masoretic text. Yeah, wow. I, I do. Yeah, that's... I remember it being a very significant finding at the time, but um, not maybe understanding all of this uh, importance or significance. One of, one of the things I think would be a good future project for me is to go through the New Testament manuscripts themselves and see how many of them switch an aorist out for a perfect tense in the later manuscripts. I'm fascinated by that because I know it happens in places. I just don't know the frequency or the density of that kind of shift. 
And then that how would be, you maybe that's categorize a, it would be another thing. Yeah. Maybe that's your your next book. Or you seem like a man with a lot of ideas. So I, I bet you could have quite a few quite a few more books. <laughs> yes, I got quite a few ideas. <laughs> I'm I'm currently working on uh the use of two Greek infinitives in the same sentence. Uh simply because we find one in a text that's hotly debated. Uh so if we think about uh um my mind always goes a little blank when I begin talking about something. It'll be clear in my mind till I start talking about it, then my mind goes blank. Uh, but it's in Timothy. First um, Timothy two twelve is the verse, and uh, uh, it's the verse that, on one hand, scholars often use this verse to say that a woman should not be a preacher, should not preach the word, and then on the other hand, other scholars will say that that verse is not properly understood. Yes, and it's being assigned to the wrong category of things, and so I want to pay, take a lot of attention in this grammar. I've, I've the grammar of this paragraph in in first timothy 2:12 this is probably the paragraph in the new testament that ha i am the most interested in yeah dr ehrman sorry to cut you off but dr no ehrman ends his book the audiobook i was listening to talking about first timothy 2 i th I, I don't know if it's 2:12 specifically but i i want to say he's talking about that being one either one of the most misunderstood or the least well-known uh, passages as far as interpretation or translation. You know, again, the, I, I don't know a lot necessarily about this, but it seemed like a very interesting passage based on what he was referencing. Yeah, it's a hotly debated passage. Interpretations on this passage go every which way. So one of the things that's made it difficult to interpret, though, is that the Greek grammar in this passage is also confusing. If you were to take even your most advanced Greek grammars, not your typical one-year introduction to Greek grammar type textbooks, but go, go through reference Greek grammars, those three-volume types that are on the library shelf, and try to, to pour over the pages of that for some clues to help get you through that passage, it's difficult. It's still difficult, and there's multiple ways you could land uh, when you when you try to go through and interpret it. I I did a paper um, this spring. One of my conference presentations was on the infinitive, the double infinitive of this passage. And I know there's more than one issue, but in my preliminary uh, introduction to what I was looking at, I focused heavily on the grammatical issues that exist in this passage. And I highlighted six of them that you can't just go to a Greek grammar and solve the issue all in one verse. It's hard to find a single verse in the New Testament that has so many known issues back to back. Do you uh, think, Do you, or I guess I should ask, do you have an idea as to what might cause that, those issues? Yes, um, because if you, one of the thing, one of the strategies that helps give us things to think about for forward thinking, how are we going to solve this problem, is uh, what if we take the classic interpretations that people have offered, translate them into Greek, and see what would that normally look like in Greek? How would a Greek writer normally express that idea if that's what they were expressing? And we find that for many of the views that are posited for for this passage, Paul has. A much simpler way to write that in Greek, if that's what he meant. Hmm. And what's here is actually quite strange. 
um, in terms of grammar, in terms of the, the words that he chose. So, uh, for example, some issues in here are, are the way the clauses are connected. Uh, what is being referred to by the verb of this clause out of the previous clause? What, how should we link them together? That creates interpretative issues all around. Uh, the other one is the infinitives. Um, infinitives generally do not take uh, a Greek nominative case for their subject, while regular verbs do. So infinitives need some other case, something that's more like a direct object case. They need they need that for their subject, which is weird for us as we think about how English works. We wouldn't expect something that's marked like a direct object to be the subject of a of a thing, but an infinitive is not a full verb. That's why. And so they they take a weird looking noun as their as their subject. When you think about the options that they can take, you realize you have more than one way to go here in this verse. There are multiple options. And uh, the other thing is there's one verb that's in this text, authentane. Uh, it's an infinitive, but there's that particular word meaning is uncertain. If you go to your typical Greek dictionaries, all of them will send you in a circular loop for the meaning. And it works somewhat like this. This word means what it means because Augustine said so. You go look up what Augustine says, and he said it means this because of what it means in Second Timothy, First Timothy two twelve. As soon as you realize you're dealing with a circular reasoning created by the dictionaries, then you realize you don't have an answer. And I think that even goes back to what you were discussing earlier, where there's the definition, or I think you had called it the basically like the dictionary meaning, but then there's also the meaning within the context of the the culture, the understanding. And I guess I I would get I would be curious to get your opinion on do you think that could have been a different scribe altering something or trying to update it to a language like a, a more, you know, more conversational or more well understood meaning at the time but then somewhere along the way our like the way we interpreted what it what he had changed it to mean might have also been lost to history or something is that at all possible or or i guess do you have any any other opinions or thoughts well what you suggest is certainly one of the things we we want to check we want to see if possibly the original intent has been altered by a scribe and therefore we have to analyze what should have been there before the scribe altered. That's one of the things that we do want to check. We don't want to rashly assume that that's happened, and we don't think that happens very much of the time. With a verse like this, um, what we normally see with scribal errors, where copyists make a mistake, is if they find something complicated, they tend to make it simpler. Here, the oldest manuscripts we have are not simplified. They are still as complex and confusing as you could imagine. And we look at the later, uh, the later manuscripts, it doesn't seem to change much. Like if they tweak something here or they tweak something there, it's more an indicator that they've already bought into a certain interpretation. But uh, with, when we look at the older text that we have, we're looking at very complicated text here to, to solve a problem. It could be that somebody earlier than that introduced the problem, and that's what cre creates the grammatical issues. It could be that Paul is trying to say something very hard to say here, very difficult to actually say, and he had to use the best words he had available, 
and that produces the odd grammar here and even the odd choice of rare words. Um, I have been looking at this thing from a perspective of not who wrote it, because that does matter, but it also matters who did you write it to. And this this letter, First Timothy, was written to Timothy, obviously, but Timothy's the pastor in Ephesus. When you start to consolidate everything in the New Testament that's written to Ephesus specifically, you start to see some overlapping themes no matter who is writing the works. John wrote uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to Ephesus. He also wrote the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, which one of them is written to Ephesus, and many of them written to the region of Asia, which also have the same culture and the same issues. In addition to that, we have, um, obviously, 1st Timothy. We have the book of Ephesians. We have the book of Colossians that were written to the same general area. When you start to see where in the world does this kind of problem show up where we're dealing with uh, some special thing that he's trying to talk to women about, you're generally dealing with it with letters addressed to Ephesians or books written to Ephesus or something about Ephesus is really the, the thing. If we can discover what's going on in Ephesus, we'd have a clearer picture of what Paul's trying to address here. A couple of interesting things emerge. One of the things that we know about Ephesus was the worship of Aphrodite. Aphrodite, also called Diana in the New Testament, it's mentioned. There's even passages in the book of Acts that refer to the missionary journeys that went through Ephesus and Paul having to flee the stadium in Ephesus. The coppersmiths were wroth with him. They're making idols of Artemis. That's the whole problem. That's, the, that's what's going on there, the silversmiths and the coppersmiths. They're making Artemis statues and trying to sell them. This is a major Artemis worship center. If you read theology about Artemis, the goddess, you find out that there's some interesting creation stories related to her, which run parallel to the next verses down in First uh, Timothy when, when, when he says, for Adam was created first uh, and then Eve, like he's trying to correct some incorrect order of creation here. A lot of scholars say, oh, that order is being emphasized because some kind of male-female hierarchy is being imposed. I don't know. I don't think so. I think there's been an incorrect order of creation that was understood, and he's correcting the order. Why? Artemis creation theology has things in a different order. This same word, authentane, that the dictionaries give us circular reasoning for is found in texts on Artemis theology. It's something that she does. I'm Absolutely. still investigating this, but I think there's something there about Artemis, Althentane, Artemis creation accounts, not God's creation accounts, but the goddess Artemis's uh, creation stories. Somehow that context is here behind this text, and I don't think we've matched them, matched the text up well with what Paul's trying to fix. And this was circulating in uh, Rome at the time. Is Artemis, is Artemis Roman or Greek? Turkish it... West West Bank of Turkey. Oh, Turkey. Okay, so like you were talking about, kind of the Asia mm -hmm. Asia Minor areas. Mm -hmm. So that would have been relevant probably to the culture, because uh, Ermin or Airman brings yeah. up Airman. He brings up the point of the um, maybe the the hierarchy within the church that you're you're alluding to and 
I don't think he seemed very sure on it either, but just that there could have been some kind of um, trying to define roles within the church and that one faction felt one way and another faction felt another way and there was tension. But I think that makes a lot more sense given the the actual text that we have, the passage, what you're talking about with the Artemis worship and their creation story being different. And so Paul's almost... I guess you could say nudging them to remind them of the true creation story or, or the, you know, of their own belief. Yes, I think there's something there. I'm still in the process of working on that. But one of the things that stood out to me as you were last saying something about uh, Bart Ehrman and the connection there with what, what he raises is that when we read Augustine defining the word authentane, we have to remember that Augustine comes from a time period when by this point, a male-oriented church leadership was common. We, we don't find that to be necessarily the case in the New Testament period. But by the, the late 300s, the 400s, when Augustine is a, is a, a figure, uh, an important figure, the, the issue of leadership of the church was different than it was during the New Testament, if we read our text carefully. From what I recall, there were even a lot of women at churches serving as deacons or elders or seemed to be very involved in the church. And then, yeah, by by the time a lot of the written documents or texts are accumulating, it seems to have switched at some point to more of a male leadership role. A couple of interesting archaeological things related to uh, this issue was that when they do tombstone studies uh, in the first century, that's the only century they find where uh, women were rulers of synagogues. We're talking about Jewish uh, faith rather than Christian faith necessarily. We're not 100% sure if that synagogue was one that became messianic or not, but uh, you find uh, a woman's name on a tombstone followed by ruler of synagogue phrase. That's the only century you find that. You don't find that before, you don't find that afterwards. And so something was going on in the first century where um, uh, you find women in leadership roles in the church where you don't see that in later centuries. So uh, by the time you get to Augustine, the norm is all the priests are male, all the bishops are male, um, and Augustine himself uh, becomes uh, Augustine Bishop of Hippo. And if you read what he has to say about women and the role of women, you already get a negative cast from him about women before you get to the part where he tries to interpret First uh, Timothy and talk about the meaning of authentane, uh, the verb there that's, I think, a major study needs to be done to discover the meaning of this verb. By the way, it doesn't appear more than once in the New Testament. It only appears here. It does not appear anywhere in the Septuagint Greek Old Testament. We do find a, a lot of instances of this verb in early Greek literature, but very little around the first century. None of the philosophers are using this word, for example. But in the early Greek literature, this word has a rich context of a wide range of meanings. Um, for example, a king who wants to order a hit on somebody, like like a hires a hitman to take out somebody he doesn't want. Uh, he, this verb is used. So it's used in the context of authorizing a hit. Interesting, the word authorizing is one of the words that come up in, in the way we translate that. Another place where this word comes up is um, 
when a, a, a writer writes a book and someone goes and makes a copy of his book, mails it back to him and lets him read it to make sure they copied it correctly. When he signs off that that one is an authentic copy of his book, now it's been authenticated. The same verb gets used. And so our, our New Testaments often translate this verb exercising authority or having authority over. And that's not what we see when we see the, the range of meanings of uses. We see authorize and we see authenticate. Those kind of meanings are, are more common for this verb. And so if we, if we were be, to be careful about this and not just accept Augustine's word on, on the meaning of this word, I think, uh, I think we would discover there's a lot more options here to think about how this, how this woman and this man are related to each other in 1 Timothy 2.12. I think that uh, would make for a really good book. I'd be curious to, to see you write. I would, I would definitely be buying that one. <laughs> it's it's a fascinating subject, and I think the church world as a whole is very interested in the conclusion on this passage, regardless of which way uh, the research goes. Just kind of one other note that I wanted to talk about, kind of in the same vein, but just uh, a little bit different of a topic, I guess, would okay. be... Um, again, I've only read this one book on textual criticism, so that's kind of why I'm referencing a bit, but sure. he talks about in Mark, uh, the story of the woman at the well and how, um, I, the story goes something along the lines of a woman's about to be stoned for adultery, but then Jesus bends down in the sand and is writing certain things in the sand. And then he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then the congregation or the, the group of people start leaving one by one until just the woman's left. And in the book, he was talking about how that section or that passage might have been added in later. It might have been a story that was popular within the first century of the church, even though it, it and it might have even been a, in a separate letter or a separate text, but then eventually gets added into mark at some point and i was just curious if you had any thoughts on that or if you know of any other stories like that i just kind of found that interesting some of the early church history stories um that sort of topic yeah i think the passage you're referring to is in john 8 verses 1 through 11 <laughs> that's probably it yeah not mark <laughs> yeah uh, the reason i say that is that particular passage has caught my attention uh, within the manuscripts as well. Um, this is the passage that most of your uh, modern day English versions would say in a footnote below that in older copies of John, this, this passage is not found. Um, and so where did it come from becomes the question. It sounds very much like other New Testament material. It, it doesn't say anything that contradicts Jesus as a character or Jesus's purpose. So what is it and where did it come from? I can't remember the scholar's name or the journal where it was published, but recently, I mean, in the last three years, maybe I've read a, an article where uh, somebody did all of the options for this. When we, and uh, his conclusion was that he believes it is canonical. It belongs in the New Testament, but it doesn't belong in the first 11 verses of John 8. It belongs somewhere else. Uh, and so you have to think, well, could have caused that? What could have caused this thing to get relocated? Well, you have to remember that uh, most 
of our New Testament books were not carried around in a form that prevented things from getting shifted. They would have been uh, carried around on sheets of papyri that were just stacked, maybe folded in half, maybe one blows away in the wind, and then they go catch it, tuck it back in the stack. So things could get shuffled around. And, and uh, when you're making a copy of a document, uh, you have to make a copy of what you have in the order that it's there. And sometimes you have to determine if somebody mixes up the pages on you, what's the right order of pages before you start. Just imagine you've printed out a paper to turn in somewhere and it's loose leaf and you forgot to put page numbers on it. And then the wind takes a page and you have to go catch it, stick it back in the pile. This kind of thing could happen. Uh, it's not unheard of. Uh, but usually if that thing does happen, we would see some manuscripts have it here and some manuscripts have it there. And that's what we actually see with this story. So, for example, John's Gospel is not the only one that has the story. Some copies of Matthew have the story. Some copies of Luke have the story. Uh, and it's found randomly in several different Gospels in the manuscript pile. And in, in the textual criticism on each of those, it seems like, well, the story doesn't belong here. So it seems like we have this story of, of Jesus talking to the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and he tells her, go and sin no more. No one's here to condemn you at the end, right? And it's interesting because it's the only place we find where Jesus is uh, writing possibly with his finger or a stick in the dirt. Uh, we, we don't know what he's wrote, but uh, probably just doodling or something. Uh, maybe writing a biblical passage. We don't know, but it's the time when Jesus writes. We can we have a context for him writing. This was the only, the only time. Um, so uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, I first came to something like this when I was looking at uh, something called the synoptic problem. We had, a, we had a course component in our New Testament class uh, at CCS on the synoptic problem. That's the, the first three gospels, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and how they relate to each other and how they're so different from John. Well, one of the things that is there when you read in the church fathers is you don't read about a Greek Matthew, you read about a Hebrew Matthew. And the other three gospels are in Greek. So when you come down to it, we can't find a manuscript of a Hebrew Matthew. We can only find Greek ones. And so this is what we have. This is the data we have. And so trying to solve backwards to see what might have happened, some scholars, and um, I am interested in this approach myself, have thought, what if we had an original Hebrew Matthew that later got translated into Greek. But in the translating of it, there were places where the translator said, okay, Mark has the story here. I'm just going to be a little easy on myself. Instead of translate all that Hebrew here, I'm just going to write Mark's Greek wording in right here. And so the Greek Matthew we have then has things that are very different from Mark and then things that are identical to Mark which would explain some of the problems that the school of higher criticism leveled against the gospels. And it offers a plausible explanation without tearing apart our notion of what gospels are and what the gospel, who the gospel writers are. Then you have this story of the woman caught in adultery. Perhaps this was in original Hebrew Matthew and it didn't get translated into Greek Matthew. Maybe some manuscripts decided to put it in, realizing it was out, but other gospel writers 
other uh, scribes would have realized this is a gospel fragment. It belongs in one of the gospels. Which one should it be in? And it seems like they tucked it into Luke sometimes, tucked it into John sometimes, and they left us with a giant mystery on our hands. It seems early. It seems old. It doesn't seem like a later edition, like we would be suspect, uh, suspicious of it if it was a late edition, uh, especially by the time of Augustine or later. We wouldn't want to say that was original, right? We would say that was just added in later by somebody who thought it was pious. But it seems to be much older than that. Uh, it seems to be on par with the earliest Greek manuscripts. However, its placement is not consistent. And that's the thing that we see with it. It's, it's placed in this gospel by some scribes. It's placed in that gospel by other scribes. And sometimes in the same gospel, but a different location by other scribes. It seems that they know it belonged. They didn't know where to put it. And that's why we have this one in various places. I would read it as a canonical story and just keep a question mark in my mind thinking, well, this is probably not where it belongs, but it's still gospel. Yeah, I think that's a really good in-depth breakdown of, of that. It's I just found that to be a very interesting story because I think I have seen that footnote too in my Bible. Yeah, the there's so much mystery or intrigue, I guess, as as far as where was it, where did this go? And um it's a great a great um story too. And I agree it seems to be consistent with the personhood of who Jesus was and the godliness of who he was. Um but yeah, I think I want to thank you so much for taking this time. I really appreciate it. And um, I know you're you're a busy man with a lot of studies and, and a lot of work going on. So I do really appreciate your time coming on. I just had one more kind of fun question for you. Sure. Uh, we've been seeing this bookshelf behind you the whole time. What's your <laughs> maybe your favorite book on your on your shelf right now? Actually, there's a little gap right here that you can see where there's one book leaning on the other and there's a book missing. It's upstairs, and that one's probably my favorite book on that shelf. But that one is my preaching Bible in Greek. That's the one I generally use for preaching out of. And uh, that one is upstairs at the moment. But on this shelf, you have, on the top shelf, you have things that are philosophical about language and some things that are linguistic, but more at the philosophical level. Down below, you have Greek Bibles and Greek uh, dictionaries and Greek uh tools. Down here you have proper grammars, uh, several different types of them, several levels of them. Down below here you have uh, some very uh, different Greek texts themselves, like different scholars worked on the Greek text and compiled them, the manuscripts, a different way than some of our eclectic ones are today. And so I have, for example, um, Westcott and Hort's Greek New Testament down here. Um, a couple others of the same time period before we had what we have now with the genealogy-based methods coming from uh, Germany. Uh, in addition to that, I've got uh, a book that's uh, very much on the issue that you were raising, the text of the earliest New Testament Greek manuscripts. That one has been a, a favorite over the time. I have a number of books in that same category. And then uh, down below the bottom shelves are applied linguistics either to greek grammar itself or to biblical biblical greek in the new testament and so that that's my back shelf and on this shelf is new testament it goes all the way past the camera i've got <laughs> this is new testament in general some of this material would have informed our 
New Testament class that we taught. And down here, I have Gospels, um, the four Gospels, and Jesus' character in person, the life and times. Um, down below, I have some what I call lighter theology. In other words, it's theology type, uh, tied very closely to certain things that come up in the Gospels. But they're not systematic theologies or full-blown theologies of any one subject. And then it goes down below, it goes to more uh, linguistics because the my linguistic shelf overran itself. So then I have uh, here New Testament commentaries uh, for the Pauline letters, and that goes down this side and up to the next one and down further. And then I finally end up with John commentaries. I have a lot of Pauline and uh, Johannine commentaries because I've spent a lot of time dealing with Paul's letters and John's letters, both in my uh, preaching as well as my. Uh, and also have James, the Epistle of James there as well. But those That's my uh, favorite book of the Bible, actually, is James. It's James? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you might have said that once when we had that one class, Romans and James. I don't know if you would have been in that class, but I think you might have. I might have, yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember you saying that once. Um, but uh yeah. Uh so Paul's letters, James and John's letters have occupied a lot of my my preaching and teaching and certainly were a component of my research for determining the perfect tense's meaning. Um, most of my, uh, most of the, the three guys that I, that I uh, had to uh, confront over the meaning of the perfect tense, most of them focused a lot on narrative texts to decide what a perfect tense means and how to explain it. And I decided to focus instead on uh, uh, discourse texts. So, letters when you're trying to argue your case to somebody how do you use language there it's always very different there than it is in stories or narrative chunks and so uh, all of my evidence comes from uh, greek letters in fact i looked at greek letters going back to aristotle and all the way forward to basil of caesarea so i got an 800 year time span wow. to look at where the new testament was in the middle i i remember that was Actually, one of my favorite classes that you taught was the the inner, what do they call it? The inner middle period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the oh. history that happened in that very fascinating class. Yes. And in, in our class, we structured it as fulfillments of Daniel's dream. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, which is a way to approach it. There's other ways to do it, too. But uh, I think that's an interesting approach because we're going to go right into the Gospels and the 490th year opens up with Jesus doing ministry. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And just as a reminder, if anyone's interested uh, that's listening to us today, you can uh, purchase Mr. Sudlesek's book, The Verbal Aspect Integral to the Perfect and Pluperfect Tense Forms in the Pauline Corpus. And that is available at Peter Lang Publishing. Actually, I we can add this link in our notes as well, so sure. that people can just go straight to, um, straight to the link. And then Mr. Sudlesek also has his own website, which uh, we will again uh, put that link in the description. So, well, thank you, sir, so much for talking today, and uh, hopefully we can Thanks. do it sometime again. Yeah. Thanks for having me as well. I want to thank you also. This has been a pleasure.